Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. All right, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see everybody. I know we're going to have people kind of moseying on in um, as time goes on. Um, but I did just want to go ahead and get started to make the best use of our time together. Well, if I could just pray, then we'll get started, okay? All right, Father, we just invite your manifest presence here this morning to be among us to help us to love you with all of our hearts, our souls, our strength, and today particularly our minds, God. Give us the um, mental dexterity and, um, and fortitude to think deeply today in a way that um, we can retain and then use in our everyday lives as we continue um, trying to live faithfully for you in this world, God. So be with me now and help my mind to process correctly and help my mouth to speak articulately to to serve you in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning everybody and welcome to Equip Class, uh, week number four with me at least. Um, And we've been talking about public theology and in case I haven't met you, which I've met everyone, but I just met Nathan, so to tell Nathan a little bit about me, my name's Eric, and um, I teach at a place called Highlands College. I'm an associate professor there of theological studies. And um, I have been here for a month now as the director of theological formation. Um, and so I've loved every second of it, but my job really is to, uh, to train you guys up and help um, bolster your theological worldview Um, to feed you uh, the Bible and to give you a foundation to approach life in. Um, So a lot of churches um, have small groups or some version of that or maybe that's Sunday school and in that context you're kind of expected to do everything that the Bible calls us to do. The one another's, the the learning sound doctrine and teaching, the being relational, the you know all of the stuff and you just can't fit it all into that and so we really needed a separate space than just on a Sunday morning um, sermon to be able to set our minds to uh, as Colossians 3 says to the things that are above and not the things that are below to um, to make sure that we are um, building a foundation for ourselves so that we're not persuaded by every wind of doctrine Um, and so um, I'm working on a PhD um, right now in something called public theology, which we've been talking about, which is just basically theology as that applies to all of life. Um, where there's discrete topics like, for me, I'm studying race um, and racism, and um, but it could also be gender or sexuality. It can be, you know, um, economics or technology. Uh, and so that's just a little recap for everyone who's been here, but also just to bring Nathan up to speed. Um, and uh, the last three weeks have been what theologians call prolegomena, you know, just sort of like first things or initial things, um, trying to really it's a form of throat clearing, like, you know, you got to make all the caveats and set up the topic well so that we can engage well. Um, and we're sort of finally getting now to doing what I've said. And so I just want to tell you a little bit about the path forward specifically, and then um, If you have any thoughts or reflections from last week, then we can take a minute to kind of think and talk about that Um, because we did get out of here in a rush, which made me really sad because we just got to the kind of the climax and didn't get to spend much time on it. But um, going forward, uh, starting today, we're going to follow the major biblical storyline as our um, sort of uh, North Star or our compass or our strategy or our method, however you want to think about it. Um, starting in Genesis and, you know, Lord willing, one day ending up in Revelation. I don't know when that will be. Um, but that's going to be kind of the, the what allows us to move forward in talking about different subjects will be the biblical storyline. Now, I'm not going book by book. I'm not going Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. Um, there's these major uh, kind of turning points in the story. Um, and that's where we're going to be kind of landing throughout this entire time or allowing to sort of guide our ship. 
Um, and in doing that, then we will pick up on themes that, that the biblical story brings up about us and our world and then connect it into the relevant topics. You know, So we're not doing systematic theology here where we might kind of pick a topic and then work through all of the sort of philosophical versions of it, et cetera, et cetera. No, we're not going to do that. And so it's going to feel a little ad hoc, a little ad hominem in that regard, because we're allowing the Bible to just drive us. And then as it comments, we're going to try to um, spend time letting it sort of investigate different aspects of our culture. And maybe not every part, maybe not all the parts that you'd want it to, but that's where your conversation comes in and you bring up things that are kind of, you know, uh, itching your brain, as it were. Um, and so does that sound like uh, an understandable plan, at least, if not a good one? Okay, great. Well, we're starting that finally today with creation. So before we get into it, um, any thoughts or reflections from last week where we talked about the six sort of reasons why we've seen a cult Christian cultural church decline um, in the West and in here in the U.S. in particular? And then we looked at a couple of, um, you know, what do we do about that kind of thing? So cultural catechesis um, was one of those things. Uh, building a theological foundation and also critiquing cultural idolatry is a part of that. Understanding plausibility structures. So what are those deep background beliefs that most people aren't conscious of that inform their, um, their kind of everyday walking around beliefs? So someone who identifies as transgender, we used that as an example last week. Um, you know, if you're going to talk to them about Jesus, it's probably the, the transgender issue is probably not the place to start because that's not where they start. They don't know that. But there's like two or three layers down that make being transgender plausible and reasonable. Um, so we got to back up, you know, uh, and people are more than their issues, too. Um, we are more than our issues. And so, you know, Jesus, you know, he sees into the heart of man. He knows what is in the heart of man. And, um, and we want to do our best <laughs> to be like Jesus in that way, obviously with the help of the Spirit. Come on in. So, last week, questions, reflections, thoughts? I think plausibility structures are a great um, term and sort of category to work with. Yeah. And even in our own understanding of faith and that, we all have our own ingrained doctrines that we need to question rather than just assume. Yeah. And the structures, you picture um, sort of maybe a Athenian sort of, um, you know, temple or building, and you have these huge columns, and there's kind of what's holding up. I'm, I, you know, I grew up in the late 80s and 90s, and so um, uh, the animated version of uh, Hercules um, comes to mind right now. And, uh, and when Hercules was just like a puny little, you know, demigod or whatever, he, uh, he's so, he's a big klutz, and he's always knocking things over, and so he goes in one of these big temples, and he accidentally knocks over one of those pillars, and then they all fall down, and the entire town falls apart. It was, you know, cute and funny. Um, I also have little kids, so we watch that with them, but I'm remembering from my childhood. Um, and so these plausibility structures, um, if we can discern what they are, both in ourselves and in the people we're trying to reach, um, then it's the, it's the house of cards that comes, it comes down, you know. Um, so, yeah. And I, I'm, that's not just the case. There's going to be almost nothing in this time together that's original to me. So plausibility structures, you know, comes from a guy named Robert Bella. He's a sociologist. Um, I learned about that through Tim Keller. Um, Tim Keller is kind of like C.S. Lewis for me. He's like the gateway into so many other thinkers um, that I never would have had access to before. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Man, y'all are great. Thank you. Thank you for bringing those in. <clears throat> Okay, um, Brandon, you had your hand up like a quick second, five minutes ago. I was trying to, I left my notes. <laughs> oh, that's why you need a notebook, you know, you can like uh, hole punch them, put them in, it's fun, you know, you feel like you're, yeah, I'm just kidding, you know. I think one of the things we talked about the decline of um, Christian culture, uh, one of the things we went home discussing is like when were you say the, I guess the, the peak of Christian culture was, like, if we're declining from it. Where would, where would you say the, the peak of? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and implicit in the question, at least as I hear it, 
is decline means you know coming down from a high point. The question is though, what kind of high point are we talking about? Is this a high point of Christianity in the West? Or is it, and this is what I think it is, the high point of cultural influence of Christianity in the West, which is not the same thing. Um, because it'd be easy to look back to the 1950s and feel nostalgic about kind of the cultural um, you know, uh, influence of Christianity. And, and yeah, there's a big element of truth of that, except for the fact that people that look like me weren't allowed to drink the same water fountain as a lot of you guys, right? Um, so it's not necessarily like the high point of Christianity, but in terms of influence and the ability to discern the structures of so much of Western society, um, that might've been a high point of influence. Does that make sense? Like it wasn't a big deal and it was just assumed that everyone kind of believed in some God and probably just generally the Christian God, whether or not they acted upon that, you know, very often. Isn't that part of what we're trying to work through in public theology is that through much of Western history in which our public consciousness has been framed by Christianity, we've also had extremely problematic um, extremely problematic um, application of of that, whether it's the Middle Ages and chivalry and uh, waging war in the name of God or um, slavery in early America and um, <clears throat> and very well-known uh, Christian thinkers engaging in that type of behavior and justifying it or, um, or the 1950s, which we're saying is a high point of like Christian influence, but nobody like not that many people, shockingly few, stopped to look around and think what the implications uh, of those views, like we're going to be prudish in this way, right. but we're not going to look at our fellow man and see them yeah. as uh, worthy of the same type of respect. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I it, mean, that's, I know that's what, that's certainly what others, non-Christians are looking at and judging yeah. Christians for. Absolutely. Yeah, and in every one of those ages that we've just mentioned, um, there's, there is always the other side of the light um, of the age. And so I think of, um, you know, 17th century, 18th century Wilberforce, because of his Christian faith, you know, spends all that he has to see the slave trade abolished. Mm -hmm. Everything that, I mean, he spent his entire, like, like 40 or 50 years of his life devoted to that singular focus. And, you know, there's a bit of irony in it, but, you know, and this is dual-sided because we live in a fallen world that when the um, British Empire finally did abolish the slave trade, um, they did so by compensating those who would have received, um, you know, who would have basically been on the losing end of that financially because they were profiting from it. So the plus and minus of that is like, well, shouldn't you have, you know, done something for the people that you were trading. Um, but at the same time, they were so committed to it that they were willing to bankrupt the entire British government um, and economic system to make a politically viable way out of it. So was it the best? Was it the most virtuous? No, but you can't say that they didn't sacrifice to make it possible. And so there's, to all of these ages, there's a both end. Um, to Christianity's influence and the blind spots and also the virtues. Art. So we're talking about decline. Are we actually talking about a genuine decline from some high point? Or are we just simply talking about failure to measure up to our highest goals and values? And this, this, gets, this gets to the question of plausibility structures because um, I guess, so like in, some, in some fundamental sense, it all sort of comes back to like whether you believe that your fundamental vision of humanity is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, noble savage, everything's wonderful and awesome, and then you know, private property or whatever comes along and, and ruins everything, or Hobbes, where in the state of nature, it's a war of each against all. And if you're, th 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 this notion of decline sounds very much like a Rousseau sort of story. Mm. Things used to be great, and now they're not. But every generation tells the story. If we take, if we start from Hobbes, though, then it is, it's, it's a much more optimistic, 
story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so two, two things. Um, you know, one is, I was, that's what the distinction I was trying to make for Brandon was, you know, we're not talking about the, the high point of Christianity, but more so of the discernible influence of Christianity in the culture. So, you know, you could look everywhere and people were operating basically with the plausibility structures of there's a creator God, that people are have inherent dignity because of some relationship to that God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, again, at the same time in the 1950s, there was a disconnect between those set of values and people that looked like me and my existence in that society. Um, and, and then the other, the second thing is to say that last week we talked about kind of those, those uh, statistics um, that um, what was in the 50s or 60s, it was something that the high point was 69% of people polled, um, you know, said that God was very important to them and, and had some kind of church going attendance. And then, you know, uh, early 20th century, it's 30, 29% or whatever. So a significant decrease in the number of people who are attending. And then just generally now, as polled, and Keller talks about this in the beginning of Reason for God, that we have um, the secularization thesis has not proven true. Uh, that when we've gotten more learning, more technology, less dependent upon, you know, myth and superstition, we have not become more secular. Um, in actuality, um, you know, religion has not decreased. Religion has increased. It's just that the squishy middle has decreased. So you're either a nun now, like I have no re religious kind of affiliation, no um, beliefs in God or whatever when you're polled, or you're like all in, <laughs> you know, the, you're, you're ticking every box of the born again Christian or Hindu or whatever. Um, but nobody's landing in the middle anymore like they used to. Makes sense. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, that's, um, I don't think I'm trying to, and if I am, I apologize. I'm not trying to sort of convey a Rousseauian story, um, where society in some ways is the problems and that, you know, men are free everywhere, free, ex um, except in chains. Um, that's not at all the, the sense. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, I don't think I'm trying to put it on the axes of like a Hobbesian story of the state of nature and, you know, this kind of warring, we're all at war and we need the Leviathan. Um, I think there's a place for thinking about that in our political theology that's really helpful. But just in what we're talking about right now, um, you know, that's not kind of the direction I was intending to go, I guess. These are good, man. Okay. So maybe that's a good place to kind of see how far we can get today. Well, one of the things I love about this class is that we don't have a set agenda in that. Like I come in with an agenda, but we don't have to, like in my students at like where I work, I have to kind of, you know, I have to get somewhere basically. You know, there, there are standards, but you know, here we're a church, so we can just sort of really take our time going through this. So don't feel, you know, shy about um, stopping and asking questions or sharing thoughts or anything like that. Um, as, as we kind of start the discussion, I just want to just show you these two books. Um, I've already shown you this one. Um, it's called Biblical Critical Theory by Chris Watkin. Um, he has another helpful little book just on creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and I use both of these as I was uh, kind of putting this together today, okay? So if you're wanting a resource, um, the Thinking Through Creation, I read in a doctoral seminar, um, and, uh, and it's Genesis 1 and 2 as Tools of Cultural Critique, and it is phenomenal. Um, it is great. I don't agree with everything that he does in terms of his trying to apply these different principles, and, and that's true of this white book as well. But, um, but it definitely sends you in the right direction to get your mind thinking about the right kinds of things, okay? So, um, so in the beginning, God. Public theology, um, well, sorry. Where are we? Oh, hey, what's up? Yeah, you got you to gotta really. Essentially what you're saying about um, the decline of Christianity is uh, it's linked to um, worldly like we're the worldly pleasures we have, where like you said earlier, like we're less dependent on myths or like the our God for for food. Like now we can just reach into, like we're so wealthy, we can just reach into our mountain highest stockpiles of food. Like not so essentially less developed areas are more mindful of uh, God and uh, have more like spend more time uh, thinking on on that and uh, praying. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's an element of truth in that for sure. And, you know, I was only trying to make the point about the influence of Christianity, not about like if it was at its best form or anything like that. Um, and yes, uh, some of why it has decreased is because of our material prosperity. But there's a lot of philosophies that have kind of gained traction and been trickled down from, you know, the university level um, as well. Um, Yes, the conversation we have in here is very much tailored to our historical um, context, our historical cultural context. That's a very good distinction. Now, we could talk about some of those other places because they have some interesting issues as well, like, you know, communist China. But um, So let's just begin here. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said. So I'm focusing here on both God and said. There is who He is, and there is what He's done. And Genesis, we may be here for a little bit because it truly is the beginnings of all the major topics and issues of the entire Bible. The rest of the Bible spends its time developing and looking back on things that are said in these initial chapters, okay? So this is a big deal, and it's going to maybe feel like like we're maybe focusing in too much, or um, how are you getting all that? I hope to show you, but these are foundational. So this morning is an exploration of Genesis 1-1 and 1-3, i.e., that God is and that God creates. That God is and that God creates. So let's just look briefly at the, um, we kind of all, I think we're all familiar with the creation story. Um, You know, he creates in six days, rests on the seventh day. Um, He does all of this by speaking. New Testament tells us that Jesus is the word of God through which he created everything. So every time he opened his mouth and said, let there be light in some way that we can't really understand. Jesus was the words, let there be light and light came into existence and, um, and so here's this creation story written by Moses and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the origins of our world and of our life in it. Um, but it's done so in the ancient Near East. And the ancient Near East is also set within the larger global context of like Greek and Roman uh, mythologies and stuff. Mythology being not necessarily untrue, but the more academic term is just explanatory stories. When you hear me say myth, in most cases I'm talking about explanatory stories, not untrue things, okay? Um, but not all of us like know these other creation stories. So when we read the creation story in the Bible, we don't actually realize that it's being polemical. It's, it's actually putting forward an argument against surrounding creation stories that are actually very similar to its own. And that's the point. It's similar, but it's seeing the differences is what you're seeing is unique and different and true about God. Make sense? So I just want to let us watch this five-minute sort of overview of some relevant creation stories, okay? In general, though, the world's creation myths include some kind of duality, whether it's that separation of male and female, light and dark, good and evil, or day and night. The idea of Mother Earth is a pretty common one in the West, and it's been remarkably persistent. In fact, in the 1970s, British scientist James Lovelock updated the myth in a scientific hypothesis, defining Mother Earth under her Greek name Gaia as a complex entity involving the Earth's biosphere, atmosphere, oceans, and soil, the totality constituting a feedback or cybernetic system which seeks an optimal physical and chemical environment for life on this planet. So let's begin with the mother of them all, Gaia. According to Hesiod, first came the chasm, and then broad-breasted earth, secure seat forever of all the immortals who occupy the peak of snowy Olympus. Earth bore first of all one equal to herself, starry heaven, so that he should cover her all about, to be a secure seat forever for the blessed gods. But then, bedded with heaven, she bore up deep, swirling Oceanus, and a bunch of other supernatural beings, including Seus, Creus, Thea, Rhea, Memory, Phoebe, Tithus, and most important for us in this episode, Cronus god of time and future castrator. These beings are called 
the Titans. In the Norse creation myth from the Prose Edda, an old Norse text, we find the evil frost giant Ymir, who not only created man and woman from his sweaty left armpit, which explains a lot when you think about it, but also created a family of frost giants. And also, also, somehow, another man named Buri, who has a son named Bor, who in turn married Bestla, the daughter of the frost giant Bolthor, because I guess alliteration was in the style at the time. Bestla gave birth to three sons, Vili, Ve, and Odin. So here's where the story gets really interesting. Thought bubble? The three brothers, Vili, Ve, and Odin, hated Ymir and the other frost giants, even though they created them. Notice the emerging theme here. So then they battled and defeated them, killing Ymir. Then the three gods used Ymir's body to create the world. His flesh became earth, his bones became mountains and stones. His blood served well to make the lakes that dotted the world and the seas that surrounded it, and his skull was used for the sky. And yes, this does sound a lot like the Chinese creation myth of Fang Ku with a skull instead of a cosmic egg, but I guess god blood always turns into water. Anyway, a dwarf stood at each of the four corners of the sky. The dwarfs were named east, west, north, and south. The gods made the sun and moon from the sparks of Muspel. To the giants, they assigned a place called Jotunheim. The brothers then created a fertile area called Midgard from Ymir's eyebrows, and they created a man from a fallen ash tree and a woman from a fallen elm. Odin gave them life, Vili gave them intelligence and emotions, and Ve gave them senses. Ask was the man, and Embla was the woman. These were the parents of the human race. And because the Norse gods were very into upcycling, out of the maggots that had come from Ymir's rotting flesh, the gods made dwarves. Poor dwarves! As for the sons of Bor, they formed a family of gods and goddesses called the Aesir, led by the father god, Odin. They built a wondrous home over Midgard and called it Asgard. The two zones were linked by the rainbow bridge, Bifrost. Beginning of the Enuma Elish, the primordial freshwater, Apsu, and the primordial saltwater, Chamat, get together, if you catch my drift, and produce the land in the form of silt deposits Lamu and Lahamu. The land then got together and created the first family of gods, Anshar, Kishar, and their son Anu, who then created a second set of deities led by Ea, not to be confused with the Greek Eos, which means dawn. Ea and his brothers were a wild bunch of crazy kids who disturbed their grandparents Apsu and Tiamat. Before Apsu could carry out his plans to force Ea and his brothers to turn down their music and go to their rooms, Ea and co. killed Apsu does seem a little extreme. Unsurprisingly, Tiamat was none too happy, so she created a bunch of snakes, dragons, fishmen, bullmen, and other horrors to teach those boys a lesson. Ea, Anshar, and Anu went to war against the monsters, but were unable to defeat them without the help of Ea's son, Marduk. Now, Marduk, whom Ea called the Great Son, with a U, was no dummy, and he saw his father's weakness as a chance to take over. So he made a deal with Ea. Marduk would help defeat Tiamat if he could be named King of the Gods and also the Universe, NBD. Ea agreed to Marduk's deal, and he went off to fight Tiamat, who, as sometimes happens, had transformed herself into a sea monster. We made it. We made it to sea monsters. Anyway, you probably know where this is going. Marduk defeated Tiamat and became the King of the Gods. But hey, surprise ending, Marduk took Tiamat and divided her like a shellfish to create the world. Out of her head, Marduk made a mountain. Her eyes became the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, her breasts, hills, her nostrils, reservoirs. Marduk then established Babylon as his temple city and the unified home of the gods. Out of the blood of Tiamat's son, Kingu, Marduk had Ea create humans who would do the work that the gods preferred not to do, like weeding and estate planning. Gods hate that stuff. So once again, we see that a parent is divided up to create the physical world. All right, so um, what are some common themes you see in these creation stories? It's always a battle. It's always a battle, yeah, that's right. It's always involving like some sort of creating the earth out of a dead body. Yeah, out of a dead body, absolutely, okay. I think those are the two salient points that I take away from it. Um, so the obvious distinction from the Christian story, I, th I think, is there. Um, so other creation accounts feature violence, jealousy, subterfuge. These are very human-like things, fallen human things, but human-like things nonetheless. 
Biblical account. The universe is not created in war and through fighting, but in peace and through speaking. Not through war and through fighting, but through peace and through speaking. So two messages arise from the rhythmic and ordered nature of Genesis 1's composition, like the way that it was written. Number one, creation is not the result of chance or conflict, not the whims of some set of gods or individuals. Second, creation's steady state is peace, harmony, and love, not war, discord, and violence. Therefore, to seek peace in this world is to call creation back to its starting place. I mean, that just gives me great encouragement to know that, um, you know, our instinct to love one another, our instinct to live in, um, in peace and prosperity with one another, to be left alone from someone ravaging our homes and our families, you know, that's not a pipe dream. Um, it's actually the natural order of things. That's the way that God designed it. That's the natural law about which things operate. And that His common grace allows to more or less be true, at least for us in our country. Um, and the brokenness that breaks through of murder and theft and, you know, abuse and all these other things, um, well, obviously, that's not the way it was meant to be. Um, and by God's grace, um, most people are... Um, they're more prone to the way that God designed it, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm reaching a little bit maybe in that. But, um, but yes, I mean, I think to call back like creation to its starting place, which is a place of peace and tranquility. Um, so in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. We have right at the outset a creator-creature distinction. Creator-creature distinction. It might look something like this. God, the big circle, and then creation, the little circle. They are connected, but they are not the same. God is bigger, creation is smaller. It's not, um, let's see, what did I say here? Yeah, um, God is not in conflict with his creation, but he is distinct from his creation. The fundamental distinction in our universe is not between God and the devil or between one part of creation and another, but between God and everything else. That is the fundamental distinction. This is called the creator-creature distinction. This distinction is not a kind of dualism, not a kind of um, Star Wars, you know, uh, the, the forces both good or, you know, light and dark, you know, it's not equal, you know, got to have balance. There's not a dualism here. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The universe is derivative, finite, temporal, and changeable. You guys tracking with me? Now, I know this is like high level. You're like, when do we get back to the culture stuff, you know, but you got you to gotta build your foundation first, right? This is foundation building. Um, the world in which we tend to live right now in the West is what you might call a monistic, um, a monistic uh, one-circle view of the world. So everything that exists is all in one circle. Usually, one fundamental element uh, can include the gods, you know, like the Greek uh, Roman pantheon. And this is really a difference between transcendent versus imminent. Transcendent, and we'll talk about this more deeply here in just a minute, but transcendent means above or beyond the created order. Imminent means here, present, in some ways even identifiable with the created order. So the difference between a two-circle and a one-circle view of reality is not the difference between theism and atheism, actually. Monism can have fallible deities, as I've already said. So there might be three key takeaways. Number one, there is no metaphysical mediator to carry out the creation of lesser things because the main God could not taint himself with his own creation. Okay? You don't have to get somebody else to do it, one of the lesser gods that you produced, and then you make it for me. No, none of that. Uh, there are no rival gods warring or fighting through which creation comes. And God is not just a bigger version of us, <laughs> you know? Um, that's one of the things you see consistent in these other alternative stories. But rather, he is something fundamentally other than us altogether. 
the otherness of God. So let's talk then about transcendence and imminence. God of the Bible is both transcendent and imminent, but not in the way that the history of philosophy, going back to the Greek and Roman thinkers, would have thought about it. And so I want to draw that contrast for us, but let's start with the biblical testimony. Two verses just to represent the, the notion of transcendence as the Bible thinks about it, and imminence as the Bible thinks about it. So number one, transcendence in the biblical view is represented here in Isaiah 55, where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like, I am so other in the way that I can think and conceive of reality, because I've produced reality, we're on completely different you know, playing fields altogether. These are not comparables. These are not apples and apples. These are most definitely apples and oranges. And then um, Deuteronomy 4.7 would be an example of imminence. Uh, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And we'll talk more about what's really embedded in there, but there's a nearness to God relationally. Or Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Somehow God is both transcendent and yet imminent. He is with us in the biblical narrative. You might visualize it like this. Um, so transcendence, uh, you know, if you're looking at the biblical sort of view of it, is God is um, in authoritative control, okay? So that would be thinking biblically about it. But transcendence in the non-biblical is, well, God is just not present. He's not here. He's not involved in any way. He's removed totally. That would be somewhat similar to deism. Or the biblical view of imminence is that God is covenantally present. So he's present through the formal relationships that he makes with creation in the world, and us in particular. Um, but the non-biblical might say that God and the world are indistinguishable. So this might be kind of like a pantheism type thing. Um, okay. So classical transcendence means, and this is where your notes pick up, I think. Um, classical transcendence means God is mysterious, unknowable, absolutely other. That's kind of throughout the ages, I'm summing up how people would have talked about it. Biblical transcendence means God is removed from us by his uncompromising purity. His uncompromising purity. This is about holiness. This isn't, you know, some kind of philosophical, oh, like he is just so discreet and out there and above us and cannot relate to us in any way. No, it's about the essence of who he is and it's fundamentally pure. And we are tainted by sin in this world. Now, I think there's a still a large thing to be said about his transcendence, even on the other side of the fall. Um, but for now, this will suffice. Number three, classical imminence means God is accessible, known, and virtually indistinguishable from the world. But number four, biblical imminence means God is intimately involved with his world. So while he cannot be identified as the world, he is other, he is distinct from, he is still involved in the world. Classical transcendence means we cannot say anything about him. Like, because he's so remote and other that there's no access to know anything about him. He's unknowable. But biblical transcendence means we cannot approach him, not to not know anything. So this is the idea of the doctrine of revelation. Like this transcendent God has come near to us in revelation, both revelation in the uh, general sense in the created order, but also in special revelation in our Bibles. 
he's just not approachable. You just can't walk up to him. I think about the, the, um, the story of Moses in Exodus chapter three, where he's just, you know, walking along, minding his own business, hunky dory. And he just happens to look out of the corner of his eye. And what do you know? There is a bush on fire, but it is not burning. I don't know about you, but I would definitely stop and say, let me see this great sight, I think is what he says. And so he walks over there and out of the bush that's on fire, but not burning, a voice comes and it says, Moses, take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. And it's not that like God is somehow actually going to be tainted by the bottom of Moses' sandals or whatever. it's, It's an image to convey a reality that exists between the two of them ontologically. That he is holy and there is great due and respect that has to come when you come into his presence. You don't just cavalierly walk into it. Okay? Number seven, classical eminence means we cannot distinguish God from the stuff of creation. So he just is there and, you know, it's like, you know, the trees, the sun, the moon, the stars. I mean, there's kind of all God in some way or another. But biblical eminence means we cannot escape his care and love. I love that. That's biblical eminence. Like his nearness is about his love and his compassion and care for his creation. And I think um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous 20th century German theologian and church leader and um, assassination plotter uh, for Hitler, he said, God is the beyond in the midst of our lives. God is the beyond somehow (laughs) in the midst of our lives. I love that. All right, we have a few more minutes. So flowing from Genesis 1, okay, in the beginning, God. Now we're getting to verse 3, God said, so God created. It's what he's done now. And so let's think about what he's done. And this is going to begin, and we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on this, this idea of a gratuitous universe. Um, anybody have a sense of what I might mean by a gratuitous universe? I would think like it uh, just kind of like excessively like overflows in like redirecting us to God. Okay. It points us to Him again and again. I like the excessive because excessive usually you might say is is unnecessary. So gratuitous simply means unnecessary in this context. It's the idea that God created everything, and he did so not out of a compulsion or a need for anything. That means creation is superfluous. It's not necessary. God didn't need it. God gained nothing to himself by creating. God did not create out of need, which is so contrasting to who we are. We do so much in our lives out of inherent felt needs. Our pursuit of a spouse is great and right and God ordained. And yet at the same time, we are pursuing something to fill a hole and a void in us. And if not put in proper biblical um, gospel grace constantly and every day, then that relationship will turn toxic because it's about filling a void that this person can never fill. But our God did not create out of a void or a lack that he had, but out of the overflow of who he is, namely love. So Acts 17, just a Back this up, Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this is the God who created. This is the posture from which he created. And so what does that mean for us then? Well, we may be important, precious, glorious even, but preciously and gloriously unnecessary, Watkins says. We may be important, precious, glorious even, but preciously and gloriously unnecessary. So a gratuitous universe and a grateful people 
gratuitous might also be understood figuratively as superabundance or grace. These are two other words that um, we might use interchangeably as we kind of walk through this. Superabundance and grace. I'm just going to start pulling this together. Number three, the paradigm of gratuity or gift implies the response of gratitude. Implies the response of gratitude. Our fundamental orientation to existence is the paradigm of the figure of gratuity is one of praise and thanksgiving. Because if it didn't have to be, then it can only be a gift. And what do you do with gifts? Well, you use them, but when you get them, I mean, you're grateful. Hopefully. So here's a question for you. If all of creation is a good and undeserved gift, then what implications does that carry for, uh, for understanding the natural order of reality apart from sin? So we're taking sin out of the equation here. Let's just think about the world before sin came into it. If all of creation is a good and undeserved gift, then what implications does that carry for understanding the natural order of reality? What does that say about the DNA of reality that we live in, that we inhabit? Social reality. Good. It's good, yeah. It's all a gift of God. It is all a gift of God. So what might that mean practically? Yeah, absolutely. It belongs to God. What might that mean practically then as you inhabit or exist in the world, knowing these truths that you're talking about, that it's good, it's all a gift of God, belongs to God? Invokes worship. Invokes worship. That's good. No need for selfishness. No need for selfishness. If this is the fundamental reality out of which the world was created and therefore marks all of reality, then, um, then what, what, what do relationships look like? What's the natural order of relationships? Self-giving. 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 Not from a place of need, but from a place of abundance. That's what natural relationships are supposed to look like before the fall. So, number one, the natural order of created relationships is unnecessary giving toward the other. Unnecessary. Gratuitous. Unnecessary giving towards the other is the natural way in which all of us are supposed to relate to one another. Marriage was designed by God to be an illustration of His self-giving. In intimately giving ourselves to one another out of the overflow of love for one another, then life and abundance flows forth from that procreation, right? Be fruitful and multiply. This is the way that we were made to exist and be. The world was never supposed to work from a place of need or even want, but also always from a place of abundance and gift. That is the law of things. And we know that deep down. That's why Paul can say that Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's more blessed because you were made to do that. So you feel that transcendent existential sense of worship when you get to do it. In a gratuitous universe, um, well, so to contrast it, right, so late modernity, the period that we live in, we sometimes call it post-modernity, where there, are, there is no morals, there, is no, there are no rules, whatever, um, developed a concept called a pathos of finitude. Finite meaning like limited, okay? Uh, a pathos of finitude. This concept essentially tries to make sense of death in a world without God and therefore without the resources to understand death, Okay. It essentially says people are meaningful and precious precisely because they will not last forever because they die and are no more. That is the way the world often tries to make sense out of death to make it feel good. 
And um, I was watching this cartoon, because I like cartoons, but I was watching this cartoon with my kids um, on Netflix called Maya and the Three. Anybody ever heard of Maya and the Three? It's a very interesting sort of cartoon, um, you know, to think about culture. And so um, as I was processing this part, it actually reminded me of this, this scene from, from Maya and the Three that I want you to see. Much more convincing. Push the death angle. Yeah, that's a great selling point. Really? Just like that? Long time now. and axes wait for noble cause. But now, Mist send you to Pichu. This noble cause, Pichu wait for. Pichu fight by your side. Maybe die honorable warrior death. Mm-hmm. See, we were all kind of seeing the probably gonna die part as a myth. Did you not fear death? Because death is beautiful. The death is beautiful? Gold has value because it's rare. Life has value because it's short. Death gives life value. Death gives life value. All right, so here it is. A fundamental locus of... Dignity is in our lack of necessity, not in our frailty. So we are dignified, we are valuable, we are worthy because God did not have to make us, but yet he chose to make us out of the overflow of love between himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is where your worth comes from. It doesn't come from this warped perception of, oh, life is short and it's precious and and it's frail and, you know, we're like the flower that's here today and gone tomorrow, like... That's not where your value comes from. That's not where dignity comes from. There's maybe some kind of twisted beauty in that. But no, like your dignity comes from the fact that you're unnecessary and yet you are. All right. I'm, I, th- I was expecting the bell to ring. And so I'm sorry that we went over time because usually it's like ding. So, um, Father, thank you for our time together. And just would you use our discussion this week, um, even in this upcoming week, um, in Jesus' name. Amen.